You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. And you know, one of the questions I ask on these podcasts of all of our guests is what is it that occurred in their lives that led them to either want to engage in social good at some point in their lives or in many cases, take on a career in creating social good and putting others above themselves. And so today I thought we would put together an episode where we gather many of those ideas or some of those ideas from a number of our guests, just as a way of maybe pushing those who are sitting on the fence to want to consider spending time helping others or supporting a cause that matters to them, or maybe people who never thought that they had a way of contributing to society might take some clues or examples from many of the people that you'll hear today. Now, I want to make it very clear that you'll hear from people who have spent their entire lives engaged in this work, and they've achieved some really amazing results that you'll be astonished by. Don't be intimidated by that. Your outcomes don't necessarily need to match what they've done. But I think what you'll see in these stories, in these comments, is that at some point, these individuals were affected either by something they heard, how they were raised, or how they were treated that led them to want to engage in some way in helping others and moving our societies forward. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. And more importantly, I hope you'll be inspired by what you hear. Roger Daltrey, founder and lead singer of The Who and founder of Teen Cancer America. I'm really interested, Roger, in understanding how someone who could have such a fulfilling career as a musician and artist, how that connects with you to the work you're doing with teen cancer. Where did this connection come from? I mean, you could very easily have just said, I'm not going to get involved in it. I'm a, you know, a rock star. I'm not going to do this. But somehow you decided that it's really important to engage in this particular cause. Well, this cause came out of 50 years of the WHO being very conscious of their of being part of society and about you know, the, the, we came from the, the poorer side of life. We came out of a war. There was a blank canvas for us to paint on as far as, you know, we just got the, the windows and the roofs back on our houses from the Blitz. 
it was certainly not the throwaway society. So we we realized what it was like to have very little. And when we made it successfully and, and started to earn money, we, we wanted to give back right from the very early, early days, right from the, the late 60s, early 70s. We were donating to charities that we thought had the potential of longevity because there's a million charities out there and they're all to a certain extent worthwhile, but it's the ones which have a real mission that you can see longevity that can improve the way society functions that, that meant something to us. Asahi Pompey, partner, global head of corporate engagement and president of the Goldman Sachs Foundation. I think I'm probably the most unlikely Goldman Sachs partner. I, my family of seven, and I have four siblings, uh, and my parents immigrated from Guyana to Brooklyn. We went to the Vanderveer Housing Projects on the corner of, for those New Yorkers, uh, Foster and Nostrand Avenue, where my aunt lived. And we moved in with my aunt who had a son, she and her husband, there were three of them and the seven of us moved in. So there were 10 of us in this one bedroom, one bath apartment in the housing projects. And we lived right next to the incinerator because that was the, that apartment cost less because it was right next to the incinerator apartment 4F. And we came in October by November and my parents had found jobs. My mom was helping my aunt who was working as a homemade and my mom did the weekends and my aunt was taking care of um, an elderly woman during the week. And so she did that on the weekends. And my dad started working at Chuck Full of Nuts. And this was a man who was a teacher in Guyana. And he was in the vats of coffee at Chuck Full of Nuts, packing bags uh, and shoveling coffee into, into bags. I remember he would come home smelling of coffee. And he had his back brace after a while that he had this big leather belt that daddy always had around his waist in the years, early years that he worked at Chuck Full of Nuts. And we were always, I grew up in a family of educators. So lots of my aunts are school principals or teachers. My dad, as I mentioned, was a teacher. And so education was always the importance of it and was always something that was stressed. And also the the fact that my parents had dreams for me that were far bigger than I had dreams for for myself. And they were preparing their kids to go to rooms they likely thought they would never get to, but you, my child, will get to those rooms. To go to places they thought, I'm probably not going to get to go there, but I'm going to try to build you that you will get to go to those places. Karen E. Osborne. In today's world, you find young people actually choosing development and choosing philanthropy as a profession. But back in the day... I had no idea that it was a profession. And my husband said to me, I had been home taking care of my children. And we were, we had agreed that I would stay home while the children were young. But now the children were both in school and I was busy running the PTA and I was running the Bluebirds and I was helping some guy with a candidacy. And so my husband, Bob, looked at me and he said, Karen, you need to take all that energy and all their leadership skills, and you need to find a job. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. So I fell into my first uh, fundraising job. It, I it just fell into it. But I what was it? What was it? I was working for the town of Tarrytown, New York, and the government. I was working for the government of Tarrytown, and they wanted to help the small not-for-profits, mostly, mostly serving minorities, you know, uh, black and brown folk. 
and to help them learn how to write grants to get money from the government, how to be successful. I had no idea how to do that, but I talked myself into the job and then I, I learned. I just learned on the job. I went and talked to other people and so that's how I started. Natalie Juresko, former finance minister for the Ukraine. And I went to DePaul University in Chicago and I had this uh, constant desire to give back, to thank the United States for having given my family freedom. I remember at this point, the Soviet Union was a dastardly place and they were blessed to be able to have gotten out of there. After DePaul University, where I studied accounting, because my parents were quite conservative and wanted me to make sure I could get a job after school, I went on to the Kennedy School of Government uh, because that really was my passion, public policy. And I was at the Kennedy School when Gorbachev was trying to reform the Soviet Union, something called glasnost and perestroika. And in the midst of him trying to reform it, it fell apart. And by the time I finished the Kennedy School, uh, the State Department was looking for people to head up a new office to work on economic affairs in the Soviet, at that time in the Soviet Union. Um, and then after that, in the new countries that emerged from the Soviet Union. And I was offered an opportunity to go to Ukraine as the economic section chief, the land of my grandparents, my ancestors. I had never been there. And it was kind of uniting the two worlds, my cultural background, my traditions with what I you know, believed to be a system of democracy and market capitalism that would bring uh, a major benefit if we could transform Ukraine. So I started with the embassy, spent three years there, and then realized that everyone was talking the talk but not walking the walk. And people were very, very impoverished uh, post-Soviet Union, and there was really no investment. And USAID created something called the Western NIS Enterprise Fund. I think today we would call it a social impact fund. And our purpose was to invest in small and medium businesses, but to also show that this could work, that you know, corporate citizen, good corporate citizenship could benefit entire communities, that you could be transparent, pay your taxes, pave roads, produce products and goods for people, and be profitable all at the same time. Victoria Vrena, Deputy Director, Giving Ecosystem and Giving by All at Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I never plan to work in like institutional philanthropy or nonprofit infrastructure. It's not the kind of thing you set out to do, right? When you're a kid, I was definitely going to change the world, right? And make the world better. Like that was a given. There's none of this business or any of that kind of stuff. I was not going to do anything like that. I kept going up and up and up to change the system. Like, like doing the work of helping individual people is some of the most important work you can do, right? It's some of the hardest and most satisfying and most important work. But I found working in that frontline way to be so frustrating because you can only help so many people in a day, right? Five people, 10 people, you touch one life and it's amazing. It's life-changing, but I always wanted to kind of change all of it. You know, So, so I, I, I learned early on, I was a systems person and I want to change the system. And so going to Gates is a good place to, to have a vantage point to, to affect that system. Elvia Castro, Associate Director, Charity Reporting at BBB Wise Giving Alliance. So Elvia, tell us about the donor trust report and essentially what it is attempting to do and how it helps 
the public and charities at large. Sounds good. Yeah, as you know, on our day-to-day work, we pay a lot of attention in doing really comprehensive, kind of insightful reports that require a lot of cooperation from the charity. We look at a lot of information, and then we produce this report based on 20 standards of charity accountability so that a portion of the population can feel comfortable giving with confidence. But we know that there's only a segment of a population, maybe 20% of people, who really do that kind of homework and background work before they want to donate. And for perhaps the majority of people, the process of trusting a charity and of being motivated to give is a little different. It's a lot more emotive and perhaps based on signals that they get when they're asked to give. And so what we wanted to do through this donor trust report is to look at people's attitudes and their behavioral intentions. So while on one side of our work, what we do is to kind of objectively and rationally study whether charity is trustworthy, what we wanted to do through this study is to understand whether people trust and why people trust and which signals they're responding to. And our hope here is that we can find ways for charities to better communicate their trustworthiness with donors or perhaps areas of public misinformation so that we can help build that bond between charities and donors. Nick Tedesco, President and CEO, National Center for Family Philanthropy. I've been in the social sector for about two decades. I started my career at a nonprofit focused on children and families, was working to provide programs that would help to empower individuals and families and communities throughout the United States. And it was during my time at that organization that I had an early introduction to philanthropy and really fell in love with the opportunities that are available when philanthropy is done well. With that opportunity, I was invited to join the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to help build and launch the Giving Pledge in 2010. And it was during my time at the Pledge that I really was reflecting on the conversations that were happening amongst the members themselves. And there seemed to be a central theme that was carried throughout each of the conversations, which was this noticeable gap between intent and action. I heard time and time again that individuals and families, those who had signed the Pledge, were and are eager to translate their intent to action, but they're limited in their time and their resources and their expertise and their confidence. And so I stepped out of the Gates Foundation and joined J.P. Morgan's private bank in their philanthropy center to serve as a senior advisor to work with individuals and families across the, the wealth spectrum to really test this hypothesis that there is, in fact, a gap between intent and action. And it was, in fact, validated. Almost everyone that I talked to throughout my time at J.P. Morgan as an advisor was asking how they can do more, how they can do it better. Pratichi Shaw, founder and CEO, Flourish Talent Management. You've actually done both, right? You, you were also, at one time, the chief talent officer in a nonprofit, but you also had a similar role in a, in a business, in a corporation. Are there differences in your mind and what was it that maybe made you leap from one to the other and now have your own sort of business supporting the nonprofit sector? Yeah, it's uh, it, there are some differences. Thank you for that question. 
There are some differences for me. The leap came about, honestly, because of values dissonance. There was just a gap from from what I was experiencing, right, in in the values of the organization and the company at that time, which granted corporate social responsibility has evolved considerably. This is what, almost 15 years ago. So corporate social responsibility, the, the notion of the corporation as a global citizen and as a community member has evolved a lot. So I don't have a sense of what that reality might be if you're if you're there right now. But for me, it, it was just, you know, I, I really want to be around service and I want to be around people who think about service at that societal level. I think that was really intriguing for me. And I think that's one of the biggest differences is the mission, whatever subsector of the nonprofit world you might be in, you might be focused on poverty, education, environment, animals, and civil rights, any of those, the mission is always top of mind. Elizabeth Mong, NFT artist, metaverse developer, and blockchain consultant. Let me ask you, Elizabeth, to share with us a little bit more about what blockchain actually is. Well, I'd be happy to, Art. One of the best ways to explain it to people who don't understand it is to explain how it can work for them. One of the things I'm most excited about is that blockchain technology actually fixes what the technology of the internet has broken. And by that, I mean it can fix things like data security, hacking situations and things like that. And it does that because the software for blockchain technology sits on computers all over the world. And when somebody writes a piece of data to one of those computers, it automatically updates to all of the other ones. So there's this huge network or block of information there. And then on a more micro level, this is encrypted. It's encrypted at a very, very high and strong encryption. And it's pretty much immutable. That means it can't be hacked. The technology can secure the transfer of funds through cryptocurrency, which many people have probably heard, but it also secures a transaction of data, which is one of the things that I'm very interested in because with all of this data hacking and personal data scraping that's going on today, we don't realize, I think, how much we give away. And maybe we don't even realize how valuable our data is. Some people say that your individual data is more than a lot of people make in a year. That's how much they can sell your data for. But in order to get this data, they scrape or they steal. And what blockchain can do is it can securely store your information and encrypt it so that nobody can access it unless you want them to. Pete Cadens, philanthropeneur and chairman at the Cadens Family Foundation. We have to repair the damage that was done. I mean, the 1994, I mean, Nixon and the in the Controlled Substance Act, Reagan, the war on drugs, Bill Clinton in the 1994-1995 crime bill that was also, you know, in fairness, co-sponsored by our current president, Joe Biden, destroyed urban communities. And, you know, we've taken some measures to reconcile that with the First Step Act, 
but a lot more needs to be done. I mean, you're right, about 40,000 people sit in, in jail today for some sort of marijuana-related offense. But if you look back 20 years ago, when the stigma was even greater on marijuana, it was, you know, triple that. And so, you know, what we have to do is we have to more than just expunge criminal histories. That is not enough. You don't just, like, have, you know, your criminal history expunged and then have some sort of, like, 10-year gap on your resume and, oh, you know, great, we, we really help these people. No, we, we, we help them a little bit. But now what we need to do is we need to figure out three things. A, how do we get them the education they need to be able to compete in the cannabis industry one-for-one one with rich white people like me? Number two, how do we get them the capital to be able to compete one-for-one with rich white contemporaries in, in the industry? And number three, how do we make up for lost time? And number three is the harder answer. I don't have the answer for that one. But we, we have a history of creating set-asides, regulatory set-asides in this country. I personally don't believe that set-asides work. In other words, setting aside a license for a minority class and saying, oh, we're, we're trying to level the playing field. The set-aside itself does not level the playing field. You only leaven the playing field if the set-aside is buttressed by or supplemented by education and capital. And so I'm, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about that and thinking about how to augment opportunities for members of the black and brown community so they can compete one-for-one one in the cannabis space. That's the only true form of, of repair that we can do here. David Eisner, President and CEO, Convergence Policy. I grew up as a transplanted New Yorker. My parents moved from New York to Santa Barbara, California when I was three. And one of my earliest memories is when, when I was swimming in the pool in our backyard and my parents brought a school of people with emotional and intellectual disabilities to come swim in the pool. I was maybe five, and I was helping some of them feel comfortable standing in the water, and I was bringing cookies to them as some of the students were getting out of the pool. I was playing host, and then I had this incredible experience where one young man was holding me so tightly as I was helping him float. And I've recalled this for a long time, this sense of how much it meant to him to be able to float in this pool and how much uh, joy he took out of it and how my simply being there by his side mattered. And throughout my youth and young adulthood, I found myself looking for opportunities where I could feel of use to a person in that kind of way. And that naturally led me to find many different service opportunities that really carried me into my adult life. Bennett Weiner, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. I think a lot of good things that we do later in life really start as a youth. And I think that's true with philanthropy as well. When I was growing up, as you know, Art, I lived in Manhattan with my family there and went to public school. And I remember um, my mother, I must have been maybe around six or seven, and she would collect donations for the American Heart Association. And back then, what that meant was you'd have like a community person give her a special envelope 
And she would literally go just in our apartment, door to door, knocking on doors, asking people to make a donation. And then she would take the collected funds and then would be forwarding on to someone else to forward to the Heart Association. And it sort of gave me the idea of, well, what's going on here? People seem to be happy doing this. And uh, why is my mom going door to door? You know, as a young kid, you, you want to figure things out. But, you know, it sort of instilled in me the idea there's something more than just doing your daily chores. There's something about helping others that comes into that equation. And, you know, there are other charity experiences that I've had. I mean, the other one, especially in New York, a big thing when I was growing up was on Halloween. It was trick-or-treat for UNICEF. And we'd be given these little cardboard orange boxes. We go door to door, ask for candy, but we would say trick or treat for UNICEF. And the people would put coins in the boxes. And then we went to school to the next day. There were these immense barrels and we would throw these boxes into these barrels. But when we did that, you'd see the volume of these boxes in these barrels was huge and about how those dimes, nickels, and quarters in those boxes really added up to something big. And it wasn't just pocket change going to the charity. It was some hefty sum that was going to be collected. And so it was a message there that, you know, little things can add up to be something much larger than you are. Kelly Bevis, General Counsel and Charity Analyst at the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. So a Cat's Life Rescue was formed a couple of years ago. And yes. how did that come together? So it's actually a really great story. My partner and I were volunteering. We decided to start volunteering at a local cat rescue. And I met my friend, Nikki, who is a co-founder of the rescue with me, Nikki Cochran. And she was working at this rescue and was not happy. And had always talked about, as, as I got to know her, she, she saw it at first, I was very, I was just going to be flaky because the volunteer part that I did at her local rescue was coming once a week or once every other week, I believe it was at like six in the morning to help her check in cats for a spay clinic. And I am not a morning person. I am not a human being before about nine o'clock. And I came and I got up every other week and I would come and she just, we got to be really fast friends. She's an amazing, amazing individual. And she said to me, she said, you know, I've always wanted to start a rescue and there's such a need for it in this county. Prince George's County, as you know, we, we both live here, is huge and not particularly wealthy, lacks resources in a lot of areas. And so I said to her, I said, let's start a rescue. And she was kind of baffled. She said, really? And I said, my job is to literally, you know, evaluate nonprofits every day. I've been doing this for almost 15 years. You know, I've, I have experience in starting up a nonprofit and, and the resources to do it and what needs to be done. Let's do it. And she said, okay. And I worked and filled out the, the application forms for Maryland and for the IRS, wrote the check. And it actually took, normally it takes about six months tops to get approved by the IRS, but there was a government shutdown in between there. So it did take a little bit longer to get approved, but we, we did and we started business. It was May 1st of 2019. Were there just too many cats going unadopted? What, what was the specific challenge that you saw? 
So PG County, as we've talked about, is a large county. We focus here in the county specifically on community cats or outdoor cats, and there are literally thousands of them on the streets in the county. Mm -hmm. This is not a wealthy county. There are many rescues that do work here, but the fact of the matter is that the TNR issue or the trap neuter return issue is one that still needs work. Euthanasia rates in the county have declined significantly over the last two years, but our county still has the highest euthanasia rate in the state. So that is something that we are working to combat. Judy Belk, President and CEO, California Wellness Foundation. My life really started, I always say, about 10 miles from the White House. Uh, I grew up at a time in this country where, again, uh, not dissimilar to what's happening now, that this country was tackling a race. Uh, so I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, born in a segregated hospital in Alexandria, Virginia, before it was a tourist destination. And my life in terms of what I had access to, what I didn't have access to, was determined a lot by the color of my skin. I lived for, you know, the first 10 years of my life in a small, supportive African-American neighborhood in Alexandria, uh, but without access to water or indoor plumbing. It's it's pretty unbelievable when you think, because I'm old, but I'm not that old. I would say that the first significant impact on me that's referenced to my journey is getting access to public education. When I started school, the Brown decision was the law of the land, but the state of Virginia always was a tough nut to crack on institutional racism just fought it. And the city of Alexandria, that's part of their their history. And so my my mother, very courageous, at the age of 25, joined a group of other African American parents raising their hands saying that they would be test case for the Brown decision. And this is where philanthropy came in. Of course, the NAACP, the Legal Defense Fund, there were just amazing African-American attorneys. But the case was funded by the Jewish philanthropic community in Alexandria. They made it happen. As a result of that, we won the case. I had access to school because when I started out, I was going to a a separate but very unequal school. That decision really changed my life. But it would take another 10 years before the city would really integrate its schools. And in fact, it was so significant that Hollywood made a movie about it. Remember the Titans. Sam Cobbs, President and CEO, Tipping Point Community. My understanding how important it was to to give back to the community really did come from my father and, and my family. And so to give a little bit of context, I was born and raised in the Mississippi Delta. And I like to say that Mississippi is considered as the poor state. 
And the Delta is the poorest part of, of Mississippi. And so that is where I was born and raised. And my father had the, the luck and the opportunity to be a high school football star. And therefore, he was able to go to college. And, but he was one of the first African-American businessmen in our little small town of Indianola, Mississippi. And I saw the way that he gave back. And I often say that the first re-entry program that I ever saw was my father ran it. And it wasn't that he was intending to do re-entry. It was just that the people that he hired, uh, he was a roofer. And the people that he hired usually had been in jail or in prison and were coming back to their community. And I asked him one day, I, I said, Dad, why every time we go somewhere, we have people with us. We have other boys with us. And what, he, and what he told me, he was like, they are not in the same situation that you're in, where they have someone who is taking interest in what it is that they're doing. And so I am going to be that person. And so he was really proud. And so I saw the way that he gave back to his community. And that was something that I didn't know it at the time, Art, but was being instilled in me in this whole this whole feeling that whom much is given, you have the responsibility to also give much to others. Al Lenhart, retired ambassador to Tanzania. You know, you think of uh, people in their lives who made a difference and who at uh, key moments in their lives... Um, inspired them to do more. In my case, it was my mother. My mother was the the rock of our family. She was the rock of our uh, little community there in Harlem, New York. Um, She was someone who inspired in me the idea that you could do more in life if you only had uh, a purpose and kept in mind it's about helping other people. And so she was the person who inspired me. And quite frankly, although she's passed away, she continues to inspire me. Well, mom uh, saw the sky as as, as the limit. Uh, She had us involved in everything from Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, um, acolytes at the church. Uh, We were involved as altar boys. Um, we were involved in all manner of activities. She ensured that uh, my brothers and I and my sister always um, looked to improve ourselves, no matter what it was that we undertook. Mom would always say, do the very best you could. And she always stressed that you always look for opportunities to give back. It was not all about you but also how do you help humankind? Helene Gale, president of Spelman College. You know, I feel like I was very fortunate to be born into a family um, that that felt that giving back was a part of uh, what we were put on this earth for. My parents stressed to all five of us that it was important for us to get a good education, but that we should also use that education in a way that could contribute to making the society uh, a better place and create positive social change. Yeah, I also feel fortunate that I grew up in a time in the mid to late 60s when there was so much social change going on 
in our nation and around the world, uh, whether it was the civil rights movement, women's liberation, liberation struggles in Africa, uh, anti-war, all of these sorts of things, large movements where people were coming together to create positive change. And so for me, as a uh, young adolescent and adolescent growing up during those times, it gave me the sense of wanting to be part of something bigger than myself. And I saw how people banding together could create really powerful social change. And so I think uh, those two things, my family influence, the influence of the times that I lived, grew up in, you know, really did have a huge impact on me wanting to be able to be part of creating positive social change. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this opportunity to hear from some of the more prominent people and some that you may not know in the work that they're trying to do now to make our world better, make our community stronger. And I hope that hearing their stories will inspire you to try to do likewise, to do what you can, to take some first steps, to be active in your communities, to support the needs of others, and maybe to put something bigger ahead of yourself. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll find us on all major podcast platforms if this is the first time. And you can hear the full episodes of each of the people I mentioned by going to any of the major podcast platforms and looking up their episodes. If you want to support the podcast, and I hope you do, you can find us on givegive.org. As I mentioned, it's the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and we could really use your support in helping people like you make informed giving decisions by producing reports on many of the world's most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor, and we'll be right back here next week with another episode. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.